it's a proactive thing. And with any relationship, I think you just have to nurture it. And there's always going to be give and take. And it's never about you. Like every good relationship is about the both of you together and moving forward. And the people that I really consider my true mentors, I also consider like really good friends. Welcome to Career Paths with Teal. And I'm your host, Dave Fanno. Given my experience in architecture, I'm super excited about my conversation with Evelyn Lee. Evelyn has always known she wanted to be an architect. I mean, when she was in fourth grade and her teacher asked her to draw a house, she drew a floor plan. This career was always a part of her. Besides having a degree in architecture, she also has a master's in public administration and is probably one of the few architects with an MBA. Evelyn's on the board of the AIA and not a local chapter, she's on the national board as their treasurer. Most recently, she joined Slack as a senior experience designer And now we're going to hear her story in her own words and get some advice on how to navigate the architecture industry. We talk a lot about kind of agile career development and how Mm -hmm. every job is another release, you know, uh, of, and you, you know, what it sounds like is that you didn't, you know, even though you kind of knew early on what you wanted to do, you were iterating and getting yourself closer and closer and closer to what you wanted to do. I mean, it was, it was funny. I joked, one of my favorite studios in SciArc was about scenario planning. And if I had like paid attention more, which is much more closely aligned to what I'm doing now. And if I had paid attention more and to like, to the joy that I, that, that studio brought me, I probably would have figured it out sooner. But like, I also architecture, I feel like is, is very linear. Like once you get into the field, it's like, okay, what, what is your, what is your specialty? You know, here's the path to leadership. You have to get licensed. So my world kind of blew up, like, you know, right before I decided to leave and go work for the nonprofit when I was like, realized, like, I don't think I want to do traditional practice anymore. That fourth grade girl was just like, okay, now what? Now what to do next? <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that I, that I sort of think a lot about, in particular with this profession, because I know a little bit more about it than others, is there is a pressure of the profession. And I would imagine that a lot of, you know, thinking about the word profession in particular, like when people take on something like licensure, be it lawyers, doctors, there's a pressure of the profession, which in my opinion, kind of takes away from the intent of the occupation. So I'd be curious to hear a little bit about, because you've taken some of these bold moves that I think are, that push against the pressure of the profession. So I'd love to hear from you, kind of like the thought process you went through and, and if you felt them or not. Uh, no, I absolutely felt them. I will say that I, I got my license never with the intention of stamping and signing a drawing or hanging my own shigal out as a traditional um, doing architecture. But I got my license because I really wanted to actually stay engaged in the AIA. And I felt that the only way I would have a voice where everyone that's a member would pay attention to me is if I was a licensed, a licensed professional. So there's this momentum, especially if you're involved in AIA leadership, where there's this expectation that like, and for all, like for all good intents and purposes, like they, they were encouraging me along in my career, right? You, like, are you taking your tests? Are you going through what was then that, you know, IDP is now AXP? Where, where are you? And then I left to go to business school with no notion of whether or not I'd actually come back to architecture and all my mentors that had been so close to me, like kind of weirded out. They're like, well, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? Um, 
So for me, going anything away from that path, like deviating away from that path became like a very isolating, it, it really isolated me. And people in the AIA didn't really understand me and they didn't know what to do with me. Um, and they still, and some of my close mentors still don't. It's having a, I have a, it's having a conversation and they're like, well, tell me about, they work at Slack now. And they're like, tell me about Slack. And they were asking me all these questions that the salesperson at Slack would probably be much better answering. And they didn't really understand that, like, I, I'm, I don't sell the product. There's these other roles that you can have in technology uh, to support what they're doing. <laughs> but they, they still haven't quite figured out or I, I landed. So yeah, the pressure is definitely really real, especially in architecture. If you've made, which is, it sort of keeps you in, and you know, I, I, you and I have sort of talked in the past that where you work now would have gone, like Slack would have gone to the alternative career fair at the architecture school, even though you are still by and large practicing architecture. Th- this notion of switching from like the firm to in-house, the client, you know, which I think a lot of sort of younger people might see that as like selling out, um, right? There's like, oh, you got to work at the firm. You got to work at the big brand name firm. Don't go right. in-house. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that transition, what it's enabled you to do and to lead a little bit if it's brought you closer to the user, which just sounded like something you wanted to do early on? Yeah, so I'm leading the... You know, so first and foremost, to the user, when you are an architect and you're like, well, we need to do this many stakeholder engagements, you know, you're usually at a place where like, we already surveyed, here's the rough program, you just need to finalize it out and, and we want you to build it. That's what we hired you to do. We hired you to build our program. So I'm at the point right now, you know, and everyone's going through immense transitioning, trying to figure out what the post-COVID workplace is. And, you know, Slack is now a remote-friendly company. It's something that we've adapted through COVID. So I, I get to be on the forefront of all of that now. And, and people are really seeing the value in, like, when it comes to space planning and when it comes to what it, the impacts on culture that it brings um, and how we think about our CapEx planning, which if you ask any CFO, the CapEx planning in an organization behind people and now sometimes data warehouses, as you probably know, Dave, um, is like the third, the second or third biggest line item in any budget right now. So for, for organizations that have any type of physical presence. So what, you know, so how do we be smart about that um, and how do like where do we want to engage our employees and where do we want to build our clients? I am driving a lot of those conversations are what I a lot of the research I'm doing is plays into those conversations. So for me that's very like that's very exciting. I think that the transition and there are still some people, thank you for calling me an architect. There's definitely architects that say you're not doing building anymore, <laughs> which I say is hurtful, but I'll get over it. The transition for me there, for me, it was an easy one. So I don't believe in work-life balance because you talk about agility, agile career planning. I talk about, I often talk about agile kind of work-life blending tech. I mean, just the state of the world right now and the company that I'm in and seeing all these architecture firms kind of misbehave when it comes to Oh, we have, we're, we're in, like, I've literally seen healthcare firms that talk about wellness, not attribute that same level of wellness and attention to their employees who's like having to do their work. So for me, 
the move away from the firm has brought me everything that I would love to see in an architecture firm, but we can afford it because we're a technology company. That's another thing. I think there's people that are like, you know, why do architecture firms have better benefits? We don't charge enough value to be able to pass through any of that to our employees. So I, I don't know if you're, I'm answering your question directly. It, it wasn't a hard, it wasn't a hard move for me. I, I, though I admit though, I've never been a designer. There are so many designers out in the world that are much better than myself. If my home office is any reflection of that, but I will, I will hire an architect when I'm ready to do a remodel on my house. I, I think those people that like are at a core that are a designer would have a little bit harder transitioning than me. But that's, but that was never the issue for me. So I've always said that about myself. It's like, I'm not the napkin sketcher. You know, that just wasn't that important to me, nor was it my strength. I'm creative, but that just like wasn't, that wasn't where I excelled. I was creative at like coming up with solutions and stitching together technologies to enable other people. So, yeah, I mean, it seems like self-awareness is there, right? And it's like, ultimately you weren't too concerned with like the outer pressures and you were you were clear on like your intent and the effect that you wanted, the positive impact you wanted to have on people and have continually pursued environments in which you could do that. Another interesting thing is because you said it, because I called you an architect, you know, who gets to call themselves an architect? You know, there's been all sorts of stuff where like people got <laughs> angry. The architect firms got an AA, got angry. Um, there's also a lot of stigma, stigmatization, I don't know if that's even a real word, around the kind of work. And I've always found this really interesting tension between interior design, interior architecture. You know, sometimes if they really want to put people down, they call them decorators, which is not nice. And, you know, making form making. But, you know, I, from my time at WeWork, I developed such an appreciation for interior. I was like, that's where people really come together. And that's where these spatial interventions have a, like a massive impact on people's lives. Can you talk a little bit about kind of that and and sort of this like value system that gets placed on the type of work based on like the cover of magazines versus the actual like impact on people's lives. Wow, that's a <laughs> that's a big one kind of to unpack. But it, I think it's the difference between like the monument makers and I I don't know, like there's definitely firms out there that all they do is corn shell. But like people will see that corn shell driving on the freeway. Like it is doing, you will see it in the skyline, like affect the skyline of a city. I think there's firms that seek out that type of work. For me, in interiors is really interesting because the work that I do is really about how do you how do how do we drive behaviors that we want to see in our employees from a business perspective? And then in addition to that, like what are not only the design, the design of the space, but what is the policies and processes we have to overlay to kind of reinforce those behaviors? But it comes that it's, it's so much more nuanced and, and maybe even strategic at, at that point of, at, at that scale. Slack has award-winning design, right? From an interior's perspective, like I, I feel like there's a lot of, it just, it depends on, it depends on who your audience is, right? If you, if you want, to make, if you want to do, if you pursue like compositions and architizer, um, corporate interiors are probably not going to be like what shows up the most. Gorgeous, I think mostly core and shells and, and high end residentials. And so, but like, but there's, there's definitely a place for corporate interiors. And then 
I just, I was on a Facebook thread earlier where somebody was just like, I really want to go into high-end residential. What's the bad, bad rap with high-end residential? And I was like, I didn't actually realize there was a bad rap as high-end residential because if you look at every design award coming out of every AIA chapter, like, there's some single family housing in it. And, and if you get the right client with amazing budgets, right, there's like, you can get down to designing the hardware for, for the door. So I, I don't know. I, I think it just really depends on the, the individual person and like the various different skills that you want to play at. I do feel like architecture tends to shoehorn you into deciding that really early on and then saying like, if you want to do this and make a career out of this, it's really hard to switch back and forth between the two. Because, because if you're looking for an interiors person, they have to have years of experience specifically in interiors. So I think that's also kind of detrimental to careers in architecture. That's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> you made a reference, you know, one of the topics we like to cover in these conversations is mentorship and mentors. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people really struggle to identify a mentor. Like the word, I think, carries a lot of weight. And sometimes it's much easier than people feel. So can you, can you talk a little bit about how you found mentors and, and the impact mentors have had on your career? So I, I've had... A- but I still have brilliant mentors within the AIA. Some of them are a little bit confused, but they will they they furnished my you know my my first child's nursery. Like that's that's how close we are in terms of family. For me, um, you will find that if you are on their traditional career path, there are a ton of people that will help you in any way possible to to that they can to encourage you to get through licensure. And that's I think where ultimately my first kind of mentors developed from. My other mentors, I've, and we talk a little bit about this, you know, I kind of reached out to you, cold email on LinkedIn. I reached out to several other people, Laura, Laura Weiss, who's a, who I would consider a friend and mentor right now, like kind of just a cold email on LinkedIn because she had this interesting path where she was an architect and then she went and worked for IDEO and now she's um, running her own, her own kind of not dissimilar from from Teal, but um, looking at like what she calls design diplomacy um, and helping organizations and cultures and individuals kind of design culture going forward. But those, I, but those mentors I kind of had to actually actively seek out and ask for an informational interview or say like, this is, this is how, how we're connected. Would you be interested in a 15-minute phone call? And then a 15-minute phone call turns into something more. Um, Amanda... Uh, Walter is a good friend and mentor of mine, and I, um, she, I, I saw her uh, write a book on social media and architecture, and then I reached out to her cold, and we've done multiple presentations together now. It's just, it, it's a proactive thing, right? And with any relationship, I think you just have to nurture it, and there's always going to be give and take, and it's never, you have to, it's never about you, right? Like every good relationship is about kind of the both of you coming back together and moving forward. And, and the very best, the people that I really consider my true mentors, I also consider like really good friends too. I think that's great. I think that these relationships don't have to be, they can be purely professional, but oftentimes they do evolve into friendship and you know, friends can be mentors and you know, we don't need to fuck the relationships, I think. Uh, and it sounds like you've gotten a lot of value, mutual value out of those relationships that you fostered. Yeah, absolutely. What advice would you give? I know, I know we've got a lot of Teal members and also just like my personal network and probably your personal network that are really affected by the current situation, given that we're sort of in a bit, you know, building lull. 
So when people are coming to you, what advice are you giving? You know, I, I think focus on the value is great advice. And like, how would you expand on that to, to think about how they can continue to work, find jobs, you know, in this environment? So there's a few things. And I've been working with a few architecture firms through this. So I think, you know, a part of it is having meaningful conversations, like learning to have meaningful conversations with your current clients that expands beyond what type of new building they need. And you have to, sometimes you're going into these conversations blind, but like, but you're just, you're searching for, for other ways or like an understanding of where they're suffering and then trying to figure out like how you can create services or align the services to offer, that you offer them to, to help them. So I, there's some architecture firms that are really looking at like, how do you get easements to expand your outdoor space temporarily or restaurants, even hair salons, like beauty salons are doing services outdoors. How, like, how do you manage process and operations to do that? There's other architecture firms that have, uh, there's a lot of companies like focused on branding during, during this time. So how do you take those design skills, you know, do, do everything from and apply it to, to brands? So not necessarily physical, but like every implementation you can there. There's a lot of people that you could do this as an external consultant when I'm doing internally, trying to figure out what the future of workplaces, right? And where and how much money firms and organizations should be putting into real estate and just getting a pulse on what does it really mean to have a distributed workforce and understanding that and being able to do those types of consulting services saying, you know, here's what I'm seeing. Your company is going to really struggle based on, on culture. Like these are things you're going to need to change if you really want to decrease your real estate footprint. And even though it may seem like you're positioning yourself for less work because you're actually helping a company decrease your work, their footprint, when they're ready to build the first building, like you're going to be the person they call because you line up for that. So I think there's different ways. This is an incredibly unusual time, right? Because I've Industries are suffering across the board, but there's. I've definitely talked to a few smaller firms that have remained really agile, that have had really insightful conversations with with clients, and they found a mutual path forward. I, I think that has to do with the intention and the relationship that they've built, but it also has to do with understanding the talents, the internal talents of their people, and where they can flex and increase their service offerings. That's great advice. Like to focus on the core skills, the transferable skills. Got a few questions here. Qdubs is great. Did you encounter struggles with emotions, personal and external (parentheses family, friends, architecture industry) expectations and perspectives during your transition from architecture to business and strategy? How did you overcome them? Yeah, I mean, I did. It was an incredibly isolating time because it's really hard to find an arch. Like you said, like Davey said, there's not many architects with a business degree. And and I didn't for a while I didn't know if I was gonna come back to architecture. There's one key person and she's on she's on the call today, actually, uh Marjane Pearson, who pointed me in the direction of Nate Gora MK Think, which is how I landed at MK Think. But it was really I, I really I really did struggle. So there there was the professional struggle if you're leaving this traditional path, what are you gonna do next? And people just not understanding what I was attempting to do. There was a personal struggle of I've been wanting to do this since fourth grade. I've committed, I've done a BARC and an MARC. I've commit I, I had all my IDP hours and I've taken the nine tests. I'm licensed. Like, do I step away from, you know, in business school we call it sunk costs, right? Like I 
for me, like if you look at, if you treat your career like an, as more of an employer, then it's just like, you can apply all of that experience to something else, but obviously depersonalizing that is really hard to do. So I overcame it one step at a time. And it was really just by slowly finding more people that are like-minded about me, but you have to talk about it, right? Like if you internalize it all, then no one knows what you're going through, even if you are going through a shared experience. So I think having conversations like this, getting out there, telling other people that like I am I'm more than willing to be a mentor or help somebody who's looking to transition or have these types of conversations. I think that's you just have to you have to be open and willing to talk about it more to find those like-minded people. Slowly you'll be able to build a network, right? Can you offer any advice on how to pivot from a traditional architecture role to one that has more to do with broader strategy? From your experience, are there opportunities in architecture firms or should I be looking more in tech or other sectors? That's a tough one because I, for a while after when I was looking to move on from MK Think, I was looking to start another strategy group in another architecture firm. And I actually had to sell the business case. So even the larger firms, so strategy as a whole, you get paid more for, <laughs> for delivering less riskier, uh, less riskier uh, value. So because you're getting paid more along the lines of you're getting paid closer to management consulting, so closer to McKenzie Bain. And so I would go into large firms and they would say, we don't have a strategy group. Tell us how you start it. And they're like, oh, you mean we have to structure a whole different pay scale for you? Like I'm paying you more than an architecture at a similar level. So you're, you're going to run up against that. There are definitely architecture firms that have strategy groups. But they, by and large, they use their strategy groups as a business development pipeline. They don't use it as a core competency. MK think it is a core competency. It is a it is a, a profit vertical, if you will. There are definitely groups out there that have spun off of strategy groups. Uh, Bright Spot is one that comes to mind out in New York. So there are these strategy groups that have spun off of people with architecture backgrounds. There are definitely strategy opportunities in the large firms. If you talk to some of those people, they often don't feel like they're on the forefront. They feel like they're trying to get all of the partners and architects to sell their services. Like, hey, look at me. Remember, we have a strategy group. <laughs> we can help you sell too. But they, but it's just like not necessarily front and center, which is where I would like it to see it be. There, there are groups out there though. It's it's this really small world. I think there's also, you know, working with Dave, with you in a program like Teal, I think it's really helpful because at least you coming from this background, you can say like, there is value in hiring architects into these strategic roles. So, you know, there's of course the IDOs and the frogs of the world, right? Where you're actually knee deep in strategy and stakeholder engagement, but they just don't always understand the, the translation of, of the skill sets you're bringing there. So, so using the, using your career switch program to really under, like speak the language of those people so you can talk about your transferable skill set, I think is important. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited. The, the first one that's architecture concentrated uh, kicks off next Monday. And so I'm, I'm excited to help a whole bunch of architects think about how to make their transfer their skills. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing this. Again, I don't think people get to see like the richness of careers and that they are these nonlinear things and they take effort. It doesn't happen by accident. So I really appreciate you sharing all the little sort of wrinkles of what you've done. And uh, it's really amazing to see the success you've had and, and the impact you've had. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode of Career Paths with Teal. Now it's your turn. Do you have an interesting story about your career that you'd like to share? Or would you recommend someone you'd like to hear from? If so, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note by heading to the show notes on this episode for the link to contribute. This podcast is sponsored by Teal, and our job is to help you land a job you love. As a member, you can dive deeper into all the conversations on our show. For information on how to sign up for one of our programs, visit www.tealhq.com. Conversations for this show were facilitated by me, Dave Fano, and Eric Martin. Produced for us by Rainbow Creative by Matthew Jones and Ritu Jagannath. Audio editing by Hammond Chamberlain. Thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next one.